0: BBC Sounds, music, radio, podcasts.
1: Mark, I've got a question, and it's all about the television, and I'm not quite sure what the rules are. So the question mm-hmm. is – hello, yes. by the way. Hello. Um, how much are we allowed to promote the, the TV show which is on tomorrow before it gets annoying?
2: What is the rule on that? I think we can do it as much as we want because, I mean, this is the podcast extra. If somebody wants to skip through this comedy gold, then, then they can do but um, we've made the television programme. We've made it for the BBC, and this is a BBC podcast. Yes. You probably got it through BBC Snouts. And I think it's perfectly fine. Simon, our television show is on tonight at 8 30. It's the penultimate. In between one of two the, Top
1: uh, of the Popsies, yes.
2: Yeah. T- top of the Popsie. Top of the Popsie. Popsies. Top I of think. the Popsie. Yes, it's in between them. And. Um, it's a six. It was a six-show run because that was how long. <laughs> it's a six-show run because that's how long everyone figured lockdown was going to last for. So um, there's the penultimate show tonight, and there's loads of interesting stuff in it. Talking about uh, Stranger Things, talking about Five Bloods, and you interviewing. Oh, anne Marie Duff, who
1: is uh, who has been on television this week. I mean, it's, so now Salisbury Poisoning is on uh, is on iPlayer, but she's always a terrific guest and she was absolutely first rate and uh, she's a great guest and she's a great actor. And,
2: uh, yeah, it's Duffer's a tip on. top show, tip top show. We've recorded it uh, already. So we can, we can say yeah, with some, it's there. And, the it's some good. and then either side, there's
1: top of the pops from 1989. I don't think I'm on either of them. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but it'll probably end was there up a period with, that right, with you
2: did, was there a period and, that you did top of the pops and then you stopped doing it? When did you stop? Well, it was just doing a
1: lot. It? I was just on a lot between like 89 and, 91 92 just cuz I was doing breakfast. But all, all of them at the, the moment finish with black box doing run right on time. That and which is which is great every time. Even though the woman singing it isn't the woman singing it.
2: it no, what's is it is it a sample? I, I remember there was a big fuss about this and then they said it wasn't a sample, it was that, that they'd oh, it's a different woman. Oh, it's a different person. It's a bit like how in the movies, in the old
1: days, they get Audrey Hepburn to sing, but actually it would be Mary Nixon or someone like that actually doing the vocal. Marnie Nixon. Marnie Nixon, do you beg your pardon?
2: um, Mary Nixon dubbed Marnie Nixon. That was was the great untold story, was that Marnie couldn't sing either. It was her sister that was doing all the singing for her.
1: That. Anyway, so they they got this stunning model to uh, come in and front their band, the the Black Box chaps, and... um, Anyway, it was a good song. It just wasn't that woman singing it.
2: I don't think we knew that But there at the time. But there, there was an Olympics, wasn't there, in which there was a young child singing with a, with a perfect voice, but it wasn't the young, it was that she was miming to somebody else because it had been decided by the state that the child didn't look sufficiently, I don't know, hopeful or something.
1: Right. That was probably 1922
2: or something like that, I think. Oh, no, in my lifetime. So That's 40s I mean. onwards. Oh, I see anyway uh, ha, here ha, we are ha, 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 ha. i'm younger than you i don't know what i don't know why you'd ever have a go at me for being old because i am younger than you amanda nucci what is, year were you
1: born, what year were you born? The, the important thing to remember what year were you born the important thing to remember
2: 1961 1960, was
1: oh, it 1960 were you I'm born in the 50s were you born in the 50s actually pete i'm gonna Tom, look you up on google pete no, Tog is older that. than me
2: and Tim Westwood is older than me. just older like, than every, Yeah, Tim Westwood's older than everybody. Hang on. I'm gonna look you up. I'm gonna look you up and Simon Simon.
1: Why are you gonna look me up? I was gonna find 90, out how old you are. Nineteen fifty eight. I thought you know that. I don't know that. You, that's why I'm asking, that's why I'm looking up. You've been at my significant birthdays. And that's always and your band played at my sixtieth, so that was kind of that's like a kind of a thing that you go, that's so a we clip. didn't play wow. at your sixtieth. You did. No, we played at your fiftieth and the sixtieth, which was at Universal. Hang on. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, we did play. <laughs> so what a sorry. memorable yes. gig it was. Well, I remember the set list. Now that was such a. Why are we here?
2: <laughs> I actually, play play, your band I actually really played. Played. Yeah, when we played your 50th, we were doing another gig that night and we all got into a taxi, belted round to the hall that you were having your 50th in, did 15 minutes and then got back in the taxi. We did the, we sound checked beforehand wherever we were at the Blues Kitchen. Then we got a taxi to wherever you were. We did the gig and we got back in the taxi, went back and did the gig while you had your birthday party.
1: Well, I'm glad you remember that one anyway. <laughs> yes.
2: So 58. anyway. We, um, so that makes uh, you how old? Just
1: i am just anyway, enough of this. Are you sixty one? Gigi Hennessy from Brighton, dear Mark and Simon, and the Totes and Balls editorial team that make the magic happen, which for some reason I'm just holding it up. He to hasn't Mark, crossed out. He hasn't crossed out. In fact, he's put it in bold.
2: Yeah, yeah. I know. Whenever people write in and they
1: it. praise us too much, it always gets taken They're out. Crossed out. They
2: cross yeah.
1: it out. That is censorship. We're under we're under the jackboot of oppression. That's what we are.
2: Okay, this note has just come up. Uh, The first version used a sample from the 1980 single Love Sensation. Oh, this is Black Box. Uh, That's right, which had not been cleared. After the copyright owners took legal action, the single was reissued with re-recorded vocals by Heather Small. When Black Box were invited to perform on the British music series Top of the Pops, they hired model Catherine Quinol? Catherine Quinol to mime the vocals. Quinol to mime the vocals, but it was actually Heather Small. Heather Small presumably didn't didn't do it because she was off being famous somewhere else. I mean, Heather Smalls incredibly famous. Anyway, Gigi
1: Hennessy from Brighton. Recently on the show, you have mentioned a few interesting origin stories about various words, some more true than others. Although no expert on language myself, being an entomologist, not an etymologist, I did come across the interesting origins of a word that has been central to many discussions in recent times, what with one thing and another. Uh, I actually knew this fact because i've been reading about it anyway the word vaccine not only not getting enough of the actual pandemic we're currently experiencing i found myself listening to a rather interesting podcast which discusses infectious diseases of the past and present (laughs) one episode covered the horrible disease of smallpox which i'm very grateful uh, to have been born after its eradication one very smart cookie called edward jenner developed the first ever successful vaccine in 1796, he realised that milkmaids who had previously been infected with a similar disease, cowpox, were immune to, immune to smallpox. So the term vaccine comes from the Latin cow or vacu. Vasche. Yes, as in vache for the French. Yeah. Because of the cowpox virus. There you go. Like, it's, it's, this is what I'm reading at the moment. Vaccinated. Vaccinated. There's another one. What's that? That's the, the pandemic, pandemic century. What oh, are
0: you really reading that?
1: you know, it's research. Are you, are you writing something? I am. I am. I am. Although in fact, that Edward Jenner fact about a vaccine, I knew because of my last bestseller, which was called, uh, which is, which is. (laughs) 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 Look, the production team are just sitting there smoking a waz, thinking, we can let let them run. It doesn't matter. And now they've just suddenly, he didn't say that. Did he? He did. Um, I've,
2: got, I've probably got a copy, but I can hold up to the camera. I have, yeah. It's just up there, but I have to go look. You know, they just cut don't it out. out it, they? they would just cut it out, which is basically censorship again. Yeah, um, I mean, it is really You're just doing a proper job, and you know your your books just kind of get removed from the. um, it's just, it's Oh, really that's insane. your book. Is is that that's being reissued, isn't it? Yeah, this is this is two separate editions. Is it? There's a new version coming out very soon. Wow.
1: We could work we could work our way through all our back <laughs> our back catalog just to what, give this, the the great production this, team something to do
2: however this this and I'm not I know this is this, this is just keep this radio friendly okay this is the best thing that we Evs did because I it, it's just so that isn't that the greatest edition of that book
1: that book is my favorite book, yes, yeah, and that's but that edition cover.
2: of it. That is just we should ris- we
1: should tweet that under our personal socials, and then the jackboot of oppression won't be able to get, won't be exactly. able to stop it. Ah,
2: oppress that.
1: Um, Phil Gilchrist has sent us a nice note. Uh, Hello, I am I am a, an LTL and an FTE. I'm a British expat who's been living in Oman in the Middle East for the last four years. Right. I should say that this ends up okay, Mark.
2: Okay. okay. Thank you for, for letting me know.
1: On the 2nd of April, my wife Jen and I welcomed to the world our little boy Bruce. At the time, Oman had just started enforcing the lockdown restrictions, for COVID-19, which included the closure of all the borders and the international airport. To go through such an experience with no family around was itself a nervous experience, but the good doctors and midwives did an incredible job and we were blessed with our new arrival. Four weeks after his birth, we returned to hospital for an echocardiogram, as you know, scan of the heart to check on a murmur that the doctor had detected after his birth. At the time, this was only a precautionary measure, so we had nothing to fear. However, the results showed that he had another heart condition, which needed to be monitored, again, only precautionary at this point. A week later, the condition progressed from mild to moderate. We were then referred to the National Heart Centre for a scan the next day, which indicated that the condition had now progressed to severe, and that emergency heart surgery was required the following day. The speed in which it all escalated still floors me when I recall what happened. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, I was not able to stay in the hospital, which meant I had a lot of lonely driving to do. Each journey to and from the hospital, as well as uh, all the alone time in between, I had your good selves to keep me company. Your dulcet tones helped me relax in what was the most stressful and scariest moment of my life. On the night of the surgery, I read a small book that Jen had made a few years before. A collection of sketches with captions about what we love to do together, and it was the perfect distraction from the horrible day that lay ahead. I turned to the final page, which is attached. I'm just holding it up for Mark's benefit there. Oh, look at that. Okay. Um, And there were 15 words that calmed my nerves and allowed me to have a solid sleep in preparation for the following day, which were, obviously, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end. Copyright, old Parker. Uh, hello, all. Five weeks on, I am glad to report that Bruce's checkup showed the all clear and his heart is now deemed normal. I
0: Fantastic. can't begin
1: to thank all the medical staff we have encountered on this journey with everything else going on. You continue to selflessly care for others and are truly amazing. Big shout out to Jen, who's been super strong and who continues to be an absolute rock for me and Bruce throughout these past nine weeks. And for making that book down with COVID and a big wass up to all the medical staff in whichever country you're in and they're true heroes, Phil Gilchrist, who's in Amman. So thank
2: you, Phil. That's why I warned you, that's, and that's why I reassured you. No, thank you. Yes, yes, you reassured me in advance, which is good, because, uh, yes, I, it was good to know that I had a good... Oh, that's, that's lovely. Well, well, thank you for that email. That's absolutely lovely. Because they don't always end, you know, well, obviously,
1: as we know. So um, last week, this is a, an email from Bruce, not the one from Buggles, it says. Uh, further to your well-spotted last week when he was 23, uh, Hans Zimmer yeah he worked as trevor horn synth programmer in fact recently i interviewed uh midyear and hans Zimmer used to hang around with ultravox as well so anyway really How was that's, that's why when hans gave a concert at wembley a couple of years ago his special guest was trevor horn as you can hear from the clip which we're about to play of them um rapping together
2: here we go really
1: That's pretty rubbish, actually, isn't it? Really, I mean, Hans Zimmer yeah. might be one of the great yeah. movie music guys of the moment, but as a rap, that was a little bit. Was lovely. that Hans rapping, or was that? It was Trevor difficult Wolling. to tell from this distance whether that was Hans or Trevor, really.
2: Yeah, it, whatever, anyway. whoever, whichever one of them it was, they shouldn't give up the day job because that was quite poor.
1: Steve Wollidge, uh hello, good doctors. Following the Rolling Stones' encroachment into Mark's territory. With their review yeah. of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you
2: see that Texas Chainsaw Massacre, horrible, wasn't it? Which we played on last week's
1: program. You asked for further examples. Well, now this is not a film review, but I do, and I do think that Mark E. Smith entered his personal opinion on another aspect of Mark's wide knowledge—that okay. of the songs of Elvis Presley—with okay. the falls concise review of Shakin' Stephen's cover of "Blue Christmas" <laughs> on. <laughs> On their song, which was called Lud Gang. Here we go. I hate the God song, shake his demons for what he has done. The massacre of Blue
2: Christmas. I'll have my life to land.
1: So, in case you didn't get it, <laughs> Mark e. Smith is singing, speaking, I hate the guts of shaking Stevens for what he has done. The massacre of blue Christmas on him. I'd like to I'd like land, to land one, one on. Yes, that's right. Which
2: is, that is like in which this ever-changing world in which we live in.
1: Steve <laughs> says, I'm not sure about the grammar of the last line, but it's definitely a one-star review. <laughs> yeah, which
2: is very good. So if, uh, if anyone
1: way. else spots any of these
2: encroachments, we'd like to hear did you ever see the Fall play live? No, I was never a big fan of the Fall. Actually, my my cousin Peter, um, who's an absolutely top bloke, is a total fan of the Fall, like absolutely obsessive fan of the Fall, and you know has seen them more times than is healthy, frankly. And every now and then, will send me sort of you know recordings or clippings of. of... In fact, funnily enough, um, it was Peter who alerted me to Reckless Eric playing in Brighton, which I was very delighted with. You know that thing when you've got like a friend or a family member who is really reliable for just getting in touch out of the blue and telling you that a band that you'd forgotten you really loved are playing Niesden or somewhere like that. That's Peter is my go-to guy for that. He was a huge fan of the fall. I had a I had a, I remember having an absolutely brilliant um afternoon and evening round his house one day browsing through his CD collection and listening to the original for the first time reading about and then hearing the original version of "Seasons in the Sun," you know, Le Moribund," which, of course, is a lot less moribund in the original version than it is in the Terry Jacks version. Goodbye that
1: doesn't really you, have a punch. My point. Trusted friend. There was a whole thing in the seventies of of songs where people die.
2: Died, yeah. And you remember the whole story about Terry Jacks was that Terry Jacks recorded that song and then died, and that was the story in the playground. And of course, it wasn't true. Terry Jacks, I think, is still around now. Um, but the whole story was, yeah, it's really sad. He recorded it on his deathbed, and then it went to number one. And because he was can, he's Canadian, he's Canadian. But that song is a, is based on a <clears throat> on a Jacques Brel song called "Le Moribund, Bund," which is much more sort of embittered. It's a it's it's like him saying goodbye to his wife and his best friend who've been having an affair, and it's all you know, da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum. It's not that kind of you know the the sort of the down 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 down. Which we used to play when I was in a band called Hopeless. Okay, well, uh, you
1: know, we, we promoted a lot of our previous work in this um, pre-live section of the program. Although the whole thing yeah. is not live, but you know, this yeah. is these, these are the podcast extras. But I think we we've witted on for long enough. Before, I think we need to join the rest of the country. Okay, you, you ready? As ready as I will ever be. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to the program. Yes, it's Wittertainment on BBC Radio Five Live i 'm still in my back bedroom, Mark is still in his underground studio, uh, and I can see him because we 're on a kind of a joint zoomy thing so that we can actually see each other uh, but we 're broadcasting to you via the uh, the fantastic transmitters of the BBC mark you
2: 're looking tip top simon you 're looking exactly the same as last time you haven 't aged a day i 've got this funny Thanks. thing that might'm my, my throat's a bit scratchy, but it 's not it's it's i've 've developed hay, what do you call it, hay fever pollen. Do you get more allergic as you get older? Because in the last four years, I've developed four allergies that I didn't have before. I can't take penicillin anymore. I mean, not that I want to take a lot of it, but I became allergic to penicillin about four years ago. And I've now, I've developed this pollen thing. I have to take antihistamines, but I can't take the antihistamine because we're doing a show and antihistamine (laughs) makes you drowsy, doesn't it? What are you, li- are you? a little bit of a hypochondriac? We're going to be going ten
1: no, seconds. No, We're already listing all the things that are wrong with you. I'm not.
2: I'm the opposite of a hypochondriac. I just, I never, I, you know, if I can possibly avoid any medical intervention, I will do. But I'm just, I'm just a bit polleny at the moment. Well, there are a lot you of people see, I mean, who
1: don't normally suffer from uh, hay fever who have been getting it this year. But my understanding is that oh, okay. someone who is a fully fledged atopic, which means I get everything, uh, my allergies right. have decreased over the years. So uh, I, I was. Really bad okay. as a kid and a teenager, and they sort
2: of got better as I've got older. I see. I never had allergies at all until about the last four or five years. So why, why are people who, I mean, I'm definitely, I've not had pollen stuff before, but I am getting it this year. What's the thing this year? Is it like super pollen or something?
1: Yes, that's right. It's super pollen from okay.
2: um, Planet Z. I've got, absolute, I've got okay, absolutely you... no, no idea. It's from the vast of night, right? That's where it comes from.
1: All, all our medical uh, correspondents are already emailing you, Mark, so that we can so uh, entertain uh, true, uh, yeah. this thing for a while. And on the subject of getting in touch, by the way, we do really, really like all the emails that come in. Thank you, may at bbc.co.uk. But as we're not live, there's no point in texting because we don't get the text and we don't even look at them. In we're fact, not. we notice that they're there and we, we look the other way deliberately. But the emails <laughs> are all read, like this one, for example, from Andrew Dubber. Uh, dear UB50, and absolutely on the topic of roping in tribute artists as support acts, which is where we were last week and the week before. Yes, I have I have nothing quite so high end as your Icelandic examples um, of fans in high places. This was the tribute band that then became, uh, which were made up of three people. One became the health health minister in Iceland. Another became, <laughs> um, or oh, the the director of Trapped, which was that great Icelandic drama. And the other was Johan Johansson. Anyway, so that was the band we were talking about. (laughs) However, a humble offering from my home country of New Zealand, says Andrew. For a brief time, I inexplicably found myself as the touring live sound engineer for late 80s, early 90s surf metal punk band, The Warners, led by the frankly intimidating Alan Nobby Stevenson, who was not only lead singer and chief audience insulter, but also the band's head of security, euphemistically speaking. (laughs) Having been banned from most venues under their previous names, the Warners built for themselves instead a a reputation as the loudest band in the country. And my reasonably short tenure with them was largely to do with the fact that this was something I was actively trying to undermine from the mixing desk on the grounds that audiences might like to actually hear the music or indeed hear anything else ever again. Often when the Warners came to your town, they were supported by Ramones tribute band, the Ramones. Now, the Ramones would start the evening's entertainment with their 45-minute high-energy set in which they performed more or less faithful covers of those classics, much to the delight of the packed mosh pit of body-slamming skinheads and their (laughs) leather-clad friends. The Ramones would finish their set to much cheering and throwing of bottles, walk off stage completely covered in sweat, remove their wigs, and then walk straight back on again as the headline act. (laughs) I suspect this DIY support strategy might have been a response to the shortage of bands willing to share a stage or equipment with them. But if nothing else, I was always impressed with their work ethic. Anyway, particularly Tongue up with the volume and down with the Nazis and a hello test one, two to Jason Isaacs. Um, That's brilliant.
2: Yeah. That is absolutely brilliant.
1: What a great thing to do. Also, uh, is, uh, and I think this is, this is Christchurch, New Zealand, but I might be wrong might be Christchurch, Dorset. Since you've been speaking quite a bit about tribute bands recently, you might like to know that one of ABBA's most talented tribute bands, ABBA for some reason had more okay. tribute bands than any other band, um, used to do performances where their support act was also a tribute band. Just to be clear, though, their support were not actually an ABBA tribute band. They were a tribute band to the tribute band. The only example I know of a tribute band that has its own tribute band though as you guys are better versed in the music biz perhaps you might know of some other examples still totally mind-boggling so i if you're an abba support band then you do your versions of money 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 or waterloo and it doesn't aren't you aren't you just copying abba rather than the abba support well, band anyway
2: bjorn again if that's if that's the band that he's talking about i saw bjorn again play at the it was either the, the 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 Camden Palais, as I think it was called at that point, and they were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant, but they had a whole backstory that, um, as far as I remember, it was something like they they'd been in a helicopter crash and they'd emerged from it, and they didn't know anything about who they were except they knew all these brilliant songs. That's where the Bjorn Again thing came from. So they would do, they would speak to each other because I think Bjorn Again were actually, I think they were actually Australian, and they would speak to each other between songs in these cold Swedish accents doing kind of comedy, you know, comedy Sweden. Um, and then they would play ABBA songs, absolutely note perfect. And in fact, when they did the the, the concert that I saw them at, when they did Fernando, I burst into tears because it was so, it was so oh, on the money. You, you know. No, no, no. I mean, I love that song anyway, but it was, everyone had, you know, lighters in the air and it was, it was, a, you know, it was just, it was wonderful actually. Anyway, if, if anyone does know of, of,
1: of a tribute
2: band that has got their own tribute band, uh, then it's made with bbc.co.uk. There's a band called, um, I think they're called Black. There's a, the album is called Black Gold. And they are a heavy metal band who play songs which are Abba songs crossed with heavy metal songs. And so they do like Smoke on the Water then turns into um, SOS. And they're actually really, really good. They do these kind of really strange mashups of very severe heavy metal songs and absolutely brilliant Abba tunes. And there was that band Dread Zeppelin. Remember that I used to do reggae reggae versions of uh, of Zep songs. Again, were actually very good. Apparently, yeah. And obviously, if you were if you were a,
1: a tribute band and the band that you were paying tribute to don't actually tour then uh, or aren't around anymore, then that's a huge advantage. Oh, well, but yeah. if there are any tribute bands that have their own tribute bands, then I suspect that's not going to be the case. But uh, anyway, we'll find out. Um, we have a guest top ten very shortly. We have Amanda Iannucci as our special guest. Hey. Yeah. A- and more from our witter world, then. This, is, uh, this was our attempt to try and find one movie from every country in the world. And then yep. as soon as we've mentioned the country, then they're knocked off the list. So we're only allowing one per country. Russell okay. Thompson. Dear both, I studied in Portugal and I married a Portuguese, so I've been absorbing the culture old and new. O Pai Tirano, which means the tyrannical father, is my favourite. It's a comedy from 1941. Chico is a luckless shoe salesman and amateur dramatics enthusiast. He is infatuated with his beautiful colleague Tatao, who isn't interested at all. However, when Chico and his amateur group put on a production of a pompous and dreadful play called The Tyrannical Father, there is confusion between reality and fiction, and Tatao gets entirely the wrong idea about who Chico really is. The film is just sheer fun. When I saw it, I couldn't believe how entertained I was by a black and white subtitled Portuguese film from 1941. Made me laugh out loud several times. So the Portuguese entry has been settled
2: and it is O Pai Tirano. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. And I know for a fact that I would remember seeing that. No, I haven't seen it. Uh, Portuguese comedy from 1941. Okay, I will check that out. Although I have to say when you said luckless shoe salesman and amateur dramatic enthusiast, it didn't immediately leap off the page at me.
1: No, maybe not. Here's the the entry from Mongolia, courtesy of Sam. I'd like to nominate The Story of the Weeping Camel, about a camel who rejects its baby because it's white. Two young boys are then sent off on a journey across the Gobi Desert to bring a musician back to play to the camel in the hope she accepts her newborn calf. There's not much dialogue at all, but it's a strangely beautiful and moving film depicting Mongolian nomadic life, but no spoilers. OK, so that's our Mongolian entry, it is an, the story of the weeping camel
2: It is an absolutely brilliant film. And there is this whole sort of weird thing that happens in it in which, um, you know, the camel won't feed its young. And somebody says, call for the violinist. And you go, what? You call for the violinist. And then they have to go off and go and get the violinist. And you go, I'm sorry, this is what this is like some in, unbelievably absurd Monty Python sketch. I know it said no no, no plot spoilers, but um, can I tell you what happens in it? Because it's... Well, I know, is, have you seen it. it? No, 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 I haven't. It's, anyway, it's haven't wonderful. It. it is absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I love that film. Rola
1: Jawad. Hello, Rola. It says, um, my recommendation for a film from my small troubled country, which is Lebanon, would have to be Nadine Labaki's Where Do We Go Now? This okay. was not the film that got Ms. Labaki her Oscar nomination, but to me, it's the one that reflects... the infinite little contradictions that add up to our most curious society. It is, of course, handled with a typical Lebanese humour and heartfelt affection in joy. So that's called uh, Where Do We Go Now? from Lebanon.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a very, that is an interesting choice because, uh, you know, Capernaum would perhaps have been a more obvious choice. I had the great pleasure of uh, interviewing LeBaki on stage at the, the BFI and she's absolutely brilliant. So I'll, I, I mean, I'll happily take any of her movies. But So that's a, that's a very good choice. And the final one
1: for now is from Matt in Cape Town, who says uh, there are a number of excellent films that could be nominated from South Africa, not least of all Gavin Hood's Oscar-winning... I I knew how to pronounce this once. Um, That's it. Um, Or Forgiveness, featuring the mummy's... (coughs) Excuse me, Arnold Volsloo. However, I think that Amandla, A Revolution in Four-Part Harmony, is the best choice for this list. It is a documentary that celebrates the powerful role of music in the struggle against apartheid. It is not only about the recording artists who help give face and voice to the movement worldwide, for example, Hugh Masekela and Miriam Makeba, but about the invincible spirit of ordinary people who defy oppression with their collective, often spontaneous song. Amandla will leave you with a song in your heart, a tear in your eye and a longing to visit this beautiful, resilient and complicated
2: nation. Uh, Matt, thank you very, very much. Very good. That? So how, nice. many, how many countries have we done now? Have we done, um, is that uh, like 14 or 15? Um, I, I, I'm awaiting the
1: latest research from our top production team once they've stopped editing okay. all our offensive comments out of the podcast.
2: 37 we've done, apparently. We've done 37 countries so far. So we're, on, we're well on the way. Well, we are well yeah, on so the way with 37 100 countries. or so more still to go. Yeah, but that's all right. We're a third of the way there then.
1: So Armando Nucci is going to be on uh, with us a little bit later on. Our guest top ten this week comes yes. courtesy of Paul Tipping in Boreham Wood, or even Boreham Wood, in Hertfordshire. Now that we're allowed to do unlimited exercise outside, here's my top ten hiking slash trekking uh, and just basically a lot of walking list of movies. <laughs> I've not included movies where the action exceeds the step count and tried to keep the walking as the core motive, but I'm sure some would argue with one or two on the list. Of course, that is the role of, of top ten This is to get people to argue. So yeah. there has to be so the walking is clearly the central plot point uh, rather than yeah, okay, anything right. else. Okay. At 10, A Walk in the Woods from 2015, yeah. Paul says Bill Bryson's book adaptation of his own traveling adventure was originally going to star Robert Redford with Paul Newman in 1998 but ended up on the shelf due to Newman's health. 17 years later Nick Nolte takes it we're going to get the impression fairly shortly takes on the Newman role to take the 2200 mile hike from Georgia to Maine alongside Redford as two real life friends in their 70s the book has always reflects a more accurate and detailed account of events with one big difference being their age they were actually in their 40s the movie focuses on them being past it and the humor that goes with that anyway number 10 a walk in the woods
2: yeah, I thought it was, we reviewed it on the show. I thought it was actually kind of cute. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sucker for that stuff anyway, and it's got Nick Nolte. <laughs> uh, number nine is Jungle from 2017. Paul says a
1: group of friends join a guide for a trek into the Bolivian jungle. This could almost be the film Predator, but without the guns, the muscles, and with Daniel Radcliffe in re, uh, replacing Arnie. <laughs> Once again, Radcliffe provides an underrated performance, and amazingly, it's based on a true story. The deeper into the jungle they go the more vulnerable they become in this thrilling tale of survival. So A Walk in the Woods is at 10, Jungle is at 9, 127 Hours is at number 8. Paul says this is not, from 2010. It's
2: really a hiking movie, it's more of a getting stuck movie.
1: <laughs> well, Paul says, not a lot of trekking in this one. In fact, a lot of being stationary for, well, for 127 Hours, to be exact. As James Franco plays the lead character, Aaron Ralston, who's stuck between a rock and a hard place before deciding to sever his own arm to escape Danny Boyle keeps your interest all the way through this. Could easily have been a boring 127 hours of not much going on, but great to see the real Aaron Ralston at the end. And just before Mark chips in, Gary on the Isle of Skye says, a few years ago I attended the excellent Eden Court Cinema in Inverness for a screening of this film. Being a fan of both the source text and the work of Mr Boyle in general, I was keenly anticipating the film. I took my seat in an uncharacteristically well-populated auditorium quickly found myself immersed in the adaptation, particularly appreciating the performance of James Franco and the imaginative realisation that was being played out on the screen. As we approached that scene, the pivotal scene, I was aware that the tension in the cinema was rising. It was clear that many of those attending were familiar with the story and knew what was about to befall the principal character. As the said scene was being played out, I shall avoid any spoilers by referring to it as the pruning scene. (laughs) There was from the back of the cinema, a loud moan, a crash and a shout along the lines of, is there a doctor in the house? (laughs) Quick as a flash, the projection stopped, the lights went up, the cinema staff without any fuss came in and invited all the still conscious members of the audience out into the foyer. After a few minutes, the doors opened and an ashen faced gentleman appeared, being aided by two members of staff. His facial expression, a combination of apology, shock and relief. The latter, presumably because he didn't have to watch the rest of the film. It's hard to imagine a similar reaction to watching 127 hours on a television screen. There is something about the scale and heft of a cinema, even the relatively sterile world of cine that cannot be replicated at home on the small screen. Anyway, 127 hours is at number eight.
2: Yeah, no, that that is a really good film. That scene is, I remember approaching it with a similar sense of dread. But considering what's about to happen in the cave, the call of, is there a doctor in the cinema should have been answered by, if there is one, there's a guy on screen who needs you. I mean, that is one of the most, I met Aaron Ralston, uh, you know, after he was doing the, he was doing the press tour with the film. Unbelievable force of will. Unbelievable. Number
1: seven is the way from 2010. Emilio Estefers says Paul's and stars in this one, alongside his real life dad, Martin Sheen in a moving journey of a father recovering the body of his son who was killed in a storm attempting to walk the Camino de Santiago in northwestern Spain, uh, a.k.a. the Way of St. James. Uh, The father decides to take the same route as his late son. We discover that their relationship was strained. There's something about discovering yourself during long hikes, and this is no exception as Martin Sheen's character is able to feel closer to his son during this 500-mile trip. The choice of music makes this extra touching, such as Alanis Morissette's Thank You, which is a song about humility and gratitude. So that's the way... uh, Number seven.
2: Again, there's you know our review of it is is still online, and I mean I I thought it was a a touching and affecting film. Obviously, that particular route has inspired many movies and documentaries as well. But that is that is a very touching film. Tim Barnes adds a beautiful gentle meander
1: along the Camino de Santiago, northern Spain, with the president Jed Bartlett Everyone wished we had with laughs and tears. Also, an awesome soundtrack featuring James Taylor and Nick Drake, but David Gray. So there's the but uh, coming in. (laughs) Hello to Mark Strong. (laughs) Uh Doug says I'm delighted to see 2010's the way made th- I like David Grey. I'm delighted to see 2010's the way make the cut. This gem of a movie always makes me cry. Martin Sheen is as wonderful as ever and James Nesbitt does that James Nesbitt character, you know, the slightly lo- annoying Irishman. He does it very well <laughs> indeed. A solid inclusion. That's what Jamie. he's very good at it though, isn't he? <laughs> has James Nesbitt ever done an accent other than his own?
2: I'm sure he has. I'm absolutely sure he has, yeah. I'd like to we do a top 10 of those
1: is that I'm not going to have to fill in all the blanks now, but I don't know. Hey, James, if you're listening, then you can send them in number six is tracks, a young woman. This is 2013 and a young woman going on a 1700 mile trek across the deserts of Western Australia with four camels and her faithful dog. This one is probably the least eventful in terms of storyline, but that doesn't stop it from being someone's uh, stunningly majestic view of their epic journey. Robin Davidson is whom this story is about. And she was very hands-on with the making of this movie as one of, her, as one of the instructors. It's also worth adding that Adam Driver is in it.
2: And again, you can find our review of it. I'm, I'm sure it'll still be online because these, what's lovely about these choices is that they're all sort of within the, the fairly recent past, meaning, you know, this side of the century. So um, there, there is a whole archive of our reviews of those films up there. So yeah, great.
1: All of these movies are widely available to buy or rent uh, in case they tickle your fancy. Wild is at number five. Uh, From 2014, Reese Witherspoon, Laura Dern got a well-deserved Oscar nomination for this Nick Hornby screenplay, which I'd forgotten. One would be sceptical, like myself, of a movie almost two hours long about someone's solo 1,100-mile hike of the Pacific Crest Trail stretching to the Mojave, to the Canadian border, but there are no dull moments. Set in the mid-'90s, Cheryl, played by Reese Witherspoon, is grieving from a recent tragedy and a failed marriage, so a trip into the wilderness, wilderness is her way of escaping hopefully emerging from this a stronger person that's wild at number five.
2: I really liked it. And I remember you did too, because um, did you interview Reese Witherspoon for it? Am I right in thinking that? Well, this is a complicated, the answer to that is yes. And then if the listener
1: says, well, I never heard it, that is also true because for reasons that we don't need to go
2: into, I believe the interview was sort of lost. Was what? Lost. 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 You mean lost as in not banned, but lost as in lost.
1: It was, it kind of went missing somewhere. So yes, I interviewed Reese Witherspoon for a while and no, no one has ever
2: heard it. Jeez, uh, yeah.
1: The Way Back is at number four from 2010. Uh, Paul says from the novel, The Long Walk directed by six time Academy Award nominated Peter Weir. This lives up to the title of the novel with our over 4,000 miles trekked from a prison escape in Siberia during the Second World War to the freedom of India. The small multicultural band of escapees include an American, Ed Harris, Russian, Colin Farrell, that well-known Russian, a Pole, Jim Sturgess, and a young teenager played by Saoirse Ronan. Their desperation for survival is felt in every gruelling step with such a strong cast, beautiful scenery, and portrayal of hardship. This is such an underrated masterpiece uh, that should have been worthy of an Oscar or two. So that's The Way Back from 2010.
2: I did the BAFTA interview with Peter Weir a few years ago in which we talked about that film. And I funnily enough, I just I had to look at it the other day just to look something up with reference, and it is still up there on YouTube. It's a it's a BAFTA, I think it's called the David Lean Lecture. And Peter Weir was just brilliant at talking through a career in a way that was completely self-effacing. I mean, we look at his career. It is extraordinary. Incidentally, yeah. on the subject of, um, you said, uh, Russian, and then you laughed the best screen Russian that you or I have seen recently. And we'll discuss this on a future version of our television show next week, not tonight. Yes. Yes. Next Friday is of course, Dan Stevens. Dan Stevens is the best comedy Russian I've seen on screen. I'd like
1: to, I'd like to see a Russian off between Dan Stevens and Ken Branagh. By the way, when Paul on that email says the small multicultural band of escapees include Ed Harris, Colin Farrell, Jim Sturgis, and Sir Sharon, what's multicultural about that lot? (laughs) I I don't think that counts. Actually, Paul, now I come to think about it. Anyway, here's the top three Stand By Me, 1987, uh, based on Stephen King's The Body. This 80s coming of age flick probably seems the most out of place in this list, but. Despite taking the least amount of steps, this focuses on nothing more, nothing much more than four 12-year-old boys just walking. Watching this back makes me wonder how much more amazing River Phoenix would have become as he got older. Director Rob Reiner was on a roll after this one, having then moved straight on to The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and then A Few Good Men. So stand by me at number three. You like that film?
2: I love that film. I mean, I know you're a huge fan of Stephen King's writing as well. And um, and it is a it is a brilliant adaptation of that of the story, the body. I remember Stephen King saying once. I think it may have been in that book that you always refer to on writing, that um, somebody once said to him, you know, did something horrifying happen to you in your childhood? And he said, well, no. But and then he recounted this particular event that happened. Then he said, but then I, you know, I never I never wrote about it. And they said, but maybe that's what you've been writing about all these years. And he thought, very nice. Yeah, I know exactly.
1: So, we've done so. Stand by Me is at number three. The Lord of the Rings trilogy is number two in our top (laughs) 10 chart, uh, which is all about hiking and walking, where the walking has to be the key thing. I'm not sure this counts. I think the walk, well, anyway, let's see what Paul says. Uh, Paul says all three classics on one epic trek from the Shire to Mordor for ring bearer Frodo Baggins and his gardener, Samwise Gamgee. With one quick Google search, I learned that the stretch across Middle Earth is 1,779 miles precisely. With over nine hours of near-perfect, breathtaking, unique, enchanting journey full of magic, this is, in my opinion, Peter Jackson's finest work. Lord of the Rings trilogy at number two.
2: I agree with you that it's brilliant, but I would still say that Peter Jackson's actually most brilliant work is Heavenly Creatures, which is still the very peak of... I mean, I love Peter Jackson. I'm a big fan. I love that, and I also... um, absolutely love they will not grow old which I thought was just brilliant
1: and the number one in Paul tipping from Boreham Wood in Hertfordshire yes that Boreham Wood where Mark drove through every single day on his way to school Uh, his top 10 of unlimited exercise and top 10 hiking slash trekking films number one is into the wild from 2007 Sean Penn says Paul directs this fascinating true story of Chris McCandley's walk away from society and into the wild Graduating from Emory University in the early 90s, he decides to abandon his processions and explore his processions and explore America until he ends up at his destination, which is Alaska. The movie is just as good as the book by John Krakauer and the soundtrack by Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam is touching and harrowing. Emil Hirsch plays the lead role with William Hurt. Playing his father, and it also stars Vince Vaughn as a uh, not as a young Kristen Stewart. It stars Vince Vaughn <laughs> and a young Kristen Stewart, soon of course to be Prince. I, Princess I Diana. would love
2: Vince Vaughn playing a young Kristen Stewart. It's an interesting thing with uh, Into the Wild because one of uh, my band members it, it really loves that book, and you know is very sort of profoundly affected by it. And um, I remember seeing the movie. I hadn't read the book. Uh, I remember seeing the movie and thinking, "I must read that book." And I still haven't read the book. The movie well, is is it, it, I think it's really really well done. But I'm I'm aware that that I haven't read the book. And I at least one person who I know very well says it's brilliant. Have you read it?
1: Uh, no. Paul concludes. Um, This movie feels hauntingly real in places with Chris's actual sister narrating throughout. Uh, This one consumed me for months after and remains my favourite movie of all time. So Paul's number one walking and hiking movie is Into the Wild from 2007. Uh, If you want to suggest a top ten, please do. uh, before, Because we'll be getting box office top tens from around the world soon, won't we? I don't know. As... Different countries open up at different times. We'll have proper box office takings at some stage. Paul, thanks very much for sending in your top 10. If you've got a cracking idea for a top 10, we'd love to see it. But don't forget, don't leave any blanks. So you have to come up with the subject and you have to come up with 10 movies that work very well. And then you can email them to mayo at bbc.co.uk. Coming up, the other side of the news. We'll be speaking to Amanda Inucci and Mark will be reviewing everything that's brand new and available to stream in the next week. Hello, you're listening to Five Live and this is Wittertainment, the BBC's flagship film show, uh, because uh, we're here and we're doing our thing. And if you want to get in touch, that would be a very nice thing. Remember, we're not live, but you can email the show, mayo at bbc.co.uk. All the emails are read, sifted, and uh, we try and find some gold. And here is one that has, has made it through our sifting process from John Chinner. Okay. So let's just say, says John, I am a listener for a nondescript amount of time. Given recent events and the stay-at-home nature of society and radio show recordings, I thought I would take a chance to free Wittetainment from his earthly shackles and send it into space. I ah, see so you weren't expecting that, Mark Queen. No, no I don't get it. I am a space nerd and an engineer was involved with sending two small computers called Astro Pies into space with Tim Peake. Once the two Astro Pie units had arrived safely in space back in 2015... The computers were used to run code submitted by UK students, giving them the opportunity to have their code fly in space, to do actual science and use real space data in the classroom. I have been running coding workshops ever since and thought maybe I could use this opportunity to send Wittertainment where no movie-based podcast has been before. More specifically, Wittertainment in code form was sent to the International Space Station, orbiting 250 miles above us and travelling at 17,500 miles an hour. Did Jonathan Ross ever claim any of this? With the intention of cheering everyone up, I cheekily submitted some code on your behalf that will scroll some text across the screen on the International Space Station, possibly in view of an actual astronaut. Also attached is a screenshot of the code that was sent so you can see the images. So I'm just going to show this to Mark. So there's a picture of Tim Peake, and then there's a picture of Code, which is so small that you can't read it, but I can see that it says on the screen, flashing across the screen of the International Space Station, hello to Jason Isaacs, obviously, tinkety-tonk, obviously, and then Wittertainment in Space. How about that? (laughs) Naturally, our favourite spaceship captain gets a mention, of course, says John. So hello to Jason. Not forgetting the certificate, which shows date, time, and the exact point above the Earth that the Code was run. Maybe if Astro Pi gets a mention on your show, more people will participate next year. It's open globally now, and maybe I won't be in so much trouble. And he also says Apollo 13 is still the best space movie of all time. It is it's very, good. It's very, very good. very good. Um, we could do a top 10 of that, John, if you fancied Top 10 movies based in space, as long as you do all the work. So there you go. We've, uh, Widdertainment's actually been in space.
2: Well, you know, I always, it was only ever a matter of time. And I'm very, very delighted about that. Thank you for sending us into space. Yes.
1: I mean, we'd rather go and do a show in New Zealand, but uh, we'll go wherever we're told to, obviously, by those in executive authority. So in this hour, Armando Annucci is going to be a special guest talking about David Copperfield. What are the films that we're going to be looking at in this hour, Mark?
2: We're going to be talking about the new film by Bruno Dumont, uh, Joan of Arc. We're going to be looking at White Riot, which is a documentary about the birth of Rock Against Racism. We're going to be looking at a sort of French sex comedy called On a Magical Night. And then coming up later on, we are reviewing Resistance, which is the film that uh, Jesse Eisenberg was talking about when he came in just before lockdown to talk about Vivarium. It's the words French sex comedy that I think will have caught a lot of people's
1: attention. (laughs) Who knew that there was such a thing anyway? Tell me more about Bruno Dumont, if that's where we're starting.
2: Okay, so Joan of Arc, um, Jean, which is by uh, Bruno Dumont, whose films we've reviewed here before on the show. I mean, a, a very changeable career, you know, Life of Jesus, Humanity, um, had, which, which I really, really liked. Or Satan, which you and I had a long discussion about how it was that you pronounced that uh, outside Satan. And then Slack Bay, which was this. You what know, was they, the answer, by the way? Or Satan? Well, that's how you Thank said it. it. I said it differently and you then corrected me. It means outside of Satan. It's this is kind of avant-garde exploration of good and evil okay. taking place in a very abstract setting. Okay. But he's also done these weird uh, comedies like uh, uh Petite Quinquin and Slack Bay, which Slack Bay I just I didn't get at all. Here's this this is one of the serious ones. But the interesting thing about it is this is one of the serious ones which when it played um, I think it was at Cannes actually Provoked more laughter than some of the comedies. It's a sequel to uh, Jeanette, the childhood of uh, Joan of Arc from 2017, which featured uh, Lila Pla Prudhomme in the title role. And that was about the childhood of Joan of Arc. So this is set in Joan of Arc's final years. So the actress is obviously younger than the character that she plays. Starts in uh, 1429, Joan wanting to march on Paris, being fought in regal uh, acquiescence. Then Leaps forward to her in prison, awaiting trial. Now, the the life and trial of Joan of Arc have long fascinated filmmakers. You know, you go back to you know Dryer's Passion of Joan of Arc with uh, Rene Jean Falconetti, which was actually based on record of the trial. You can think of Luke Besson's The Messenger with uh, Mila Jovovich, which wasn't really based on on, on fact. And um, the the one thing you can say about this film is it is not like any of the films that have gone before it. Um, essentially, the, the second half of it, the, the trial stuff, cuts between these glistening uh, uh, cathedral interior, it's meant to be wrong, and this World War II bunker where Joan is kept uh, in prison. And I, ha- I have to say, this I, this is one of the rare cases, when I read a review before I saw the film. There was a, a review in Sight and Sound when it played at Cannes in which Sight and Sound magazine said, this Amdram retail of the Saints court case finds the director on his most testingly dismal form. <laughs> and yeah and i know exactly so i thought oh for heaven's sake and yet uh, simon paul and the production team said well you should you know you should review it because it's an it's an important film i went in with very low expectations and it is true that as many critics have pointed out there are moments in it that seem to be pure monty python um, you know, from the from the armor wearing to, to the guards who are guarding uh, Joan when she's in the... Like, there are moments in it of pure absurdist comedy. The question is, and there's, there's a moment in the middle of the trial when suddenly it breaks into falsetto singing with synthesizer music. And I have a very high tolerance for movies that kind of discuss religion and theology at great length. And I also have a fairly high tolerance for a certain form of absurdist comedy. And the question in the case of this is, how much of the absurdity is deliberate and i think the answer to that has to be all of it because there is no way it can be accidental so on the one hand it is quite a testing film i mean brina de works an awful lot with uh, you know with, with with non-actors although actually it's always true that non-actors speaking in a different language received differently to you know non-professional actors speaking the language speaking your your, your own language so because it all seems it's it's a very theatrical performance anyway the performances didn't bother me and in fact the uh, the young star of the film is very very good um but in that same review that that uh, was written in sight and sound there was a, this this phrase which stuck with me which which is that there is a vi- a vein of mildly lofty contempt running through Dumont's films and it was funny because reading that kind of clarified for me what it was that I thought about the film if i'm going to be charitable about it i'd say this I'd say you know Joan of Arc has been done to death by cinema and with good reason because there because the trial of Joan of Arc is an extraordinary thing. If I was going to be uncharitable I would say it's one of those films in which the director is almost laughing at you rather than laughing with you and occasionally the sense of what he considers to be absurdist role-playing just becomes annoying. It just becomes arch. It's like there's a strange thing in which somebody's making a film about a serious subject matter, but simultaneously appearing to sneer at it in a way which prevents you from being able to question whether, whether that is what they're actually doing, which is all a very long-winded way of saying, I don't think I could recommend um, Joan of Arc to anybody. Because honestly, you'd have to go into it wanting to see it and with a with the most positive attitude to it. But that said, I went into it having to see it and expecting it to be really, really hard work because it had fairly poor reviews and actually being surprised by how much I got out of it. So it bothered me and at times it bored me and occasionally it exasperated me. But I also found myself oddly gripped by it. And there is there is something about Bruno Dumont. It's, you know, it's the Lars von Trier thing. It's There is something there. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but it is something. As long as that something isn't this kind of something
1: that says, I'm a Nazi and says, oh, no, it was just a joke because yeah. it's not
2: funny, Lars. It's not that, Simon. No, it's not.
1: <laughs> but would you say, though, Mark, on balance, would you say if Joan of Arc had a heart,
2: would she give it as a gift?
1: to yeah, such as I'm... me who longs to see how an angel ought to be. Her dreams to give her heart away like an orphan on a wave. Would you say, would
2: you say that? Well, I think that orchestral is in the dark's kind of uh, entry into the Joan of Arc oeuvre. There's two, isn't there? There's um, yes. Maid of Orléans and what was the other one called? Was the other one called Joan of Arc? Joan of Arc, Arc and then Joan of Arc then... waltz Maid of Orléans because right. she yeah,
1: cared so, uh, so much she offered up her body to the grave i mean that's pretty much the work history according to andy mccluskey and there you go that's
2: yeah <laughs> thank you for so bringing I it think, all
1: i think <laughs> i'll i'll listen to that rather than watch your bruno Demont film thank you very I, just, much.
2: I, I think you should listen to that because i think you'd hate this film i think you'd absolutely hate it and believe oh, I know me I, thinking yeah. I was going to but i didn't yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So uh,
1: lockdown correspondence so uh this is this is very good so this is where we are getting you normally your lobby correspondence now your lockdown correspondence which is great because you can watch any old thing on the television just to make it very clear you don't have to have liked what you've watched you don't have to watch something and then tell us how great it is you can watch something and say well that was a, a big old waste of time So it's recommendations and stuff you think we should definitely avoid uh, once you've watched it. And then you you record yourself, then you send it on an email to mayo at bbc.co.uk. And if you can keep your contribution to under five hours, that would be great. 20 seconds is what we like. No more than that. Thank you so much. First up in our lockdown correspondence section, here's Alex Stevenson-Brown.
0: My partner Alex and I have just finished watching Tucked which we both thoroughly recommend. The film really takes you on emotional highs
2: and has some really sad points too. But uh, for such a small cast, it is a really big film and we thoroughly recommend it to anybody.
1: Thank you. That's Alex, whose partner is Alex. Thank you very much. It could be someone else who's using Alex's email and that's the, the, that's the confusion. But anyway, Alex and Alex, thank you very much. Uh, next up, Ashley, who's in Berlin. Just finished watching the film
0: Okja on Netflix. What a film. Really, really fun and silly in places, really kind of adventurous and zany and a bit sort of weird, but at the same time quite dark and quite hard-hitting and far more emotional than I thought. And as always, Tilda Swinton. What an actress. Is she actually bad in anything?
1: Uh, That's actually talking about Okja, which you can talk about.
2: Yeah, I think the short answer to that is no, and that she isn't actually bad in anything at all. Tilda Swinton is absolutely... I love Okja. I think it's fantastic. And you and I were recently talking about the television production of Snowpiercer. In the film of Snowpiercer, Tilda Swinton is just out of this world.
1: Uh, So Vina
0: is in London. Just watched Le Havre on Mubi. Hopeful, compassion, and that ending. Woo! Not me for six. Totally out of sight. Recommend for sure.
1: OK, it's so a top recommendation
2: from Vina for La Ave, Mark. It is always difficult to explain any a- Aki Karismaki film, but that is when you just go, Woo! That's, that is what a lot of Aki Karismaki films feel like. So, yeah, absolutely.
1: OK, next up, uh, our next lockdown correspondent. Here comes Carl. I've just watched Me, Earl and the
2: Dying Girl. I've only just been able to stop crying. It's beautiful, sad, uplifting and ultimately life-affirming. And that's it. I've got to stop now.
1: So That's what we encourage you to do. When you've seen a movie, you uh, review it, send it to us straight away. You can leave it for a while or you can do it straight away. Mark, Me, Earl and the Dying Girl.
2: Yeah, I really like that. That sounded to me like that was somebody genuinely moved by the film. And I have to say quite often if I come out of a film, I liked Me, Earl and the Dying Girl, incidentally. I thought it was going to be mawkish, but it was actually much better than that. But, um, you know, usually I get to see a film and then I've got a couple of days grace before we talk about it on the radio. If you caught me coming out of movies that, you know, it, quite often, that's exactly what I would sound like. If, a, if I, I mean, I love crying in films anyway, but if a film has moved me, I do find it very difficult to talk about it afterwards. And it's just it's just lovely to hear somebody just coming straight out of and doing. I mean, unless what that person was doing was a brilliant acting job, which I don't think they were. It's really great to hear a genuine emotional response to a film.
1: Okay, next up, we've got Sophie Manson, aged eight.
0: I really liked this film, and I especially liked it when the man and the woman walked into the cupboard, which made you disappear. And I also liked it when the man they were attacking in that same room um, fell through the trap door.
1: Yes, the lady vanishes. I think
2: the clue was the bit where the the man and the woman vanished. That's a top review. No, that was brilliant. It was the fact that you didn't say what the film was before. It was the fact that it was like, it was kind of a, I was going, hang on, what what film am I talking about? What film is this? Are we reviewing? So yeah, no, it's a great review, but it was just, it would have helped me if you would said in advance, this is what it is.
1: I just do what I'm told to do, Mark. I'm just doing what I'm told to do. Uh, Next up, Stephen is in Oxfordshire.
0: I've taken this perfect opportunity to watch Abel Gantz's 1927 epic Napoleon on the BFI player. This five and a half hour long restoration had me engrossed from the start to its epic triptych finish. Now I'm just
1: left
2: wishing that he'd managed to tell the rest of the little corporal story. Did you ever see the whole of Napoleon? Uh, no, I did not. Because no. I, I, it. I mean, it is one of those things when it, it it sounds like it's going to be an absolute, you know, endurance test, and then it's it's completely brilliant. I mean, it is completely jaw droppingly brilliant.
1: Well, uh, Stephen has done precisely that, and he's taken the opportunity of having lots of time to find it and to watch all of it, and he kind of agrees with you as well. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much indeed. Once you've got, done a review, like I said, you can like it, you cannot like it, doesn't really matter, uh, just send us a review via the email
2: mayo at bbc.co.uk.
1: Amanda Unucci is on the way, but uh, what else is out first of all, Mark?
2: So on a magical night, aka Chambre Two One Two, I don't know what what, what French for Two One Two is, but um, so this is a kind of um, well, it's, like I said, a sex comedy from uh, Christophe Honoré, who is uh, you know very much admired by the critics. Uh, centers on a uh, a professor uh, Maria, who is a legal professor, who spent most of her marriage to her husband Richard being unfaithful to him, and then she's very surprised to discover that he hasn't apparently been doing the same thing. They have a very cosmopolitan, very metropolitan, low key row after which she goes across the streets to a hotel uh, where she stays for the magical night. And during the course of that magical night in a kind of uh, Christmas Carol type way, she is visited by the ghosts of lovers past, including a younger reincarnation of her now very forlorn hubby. She's also visited by disproving mother and a character who appears to be Charles Aznavoire, who I think is an embodiment of her libido, but I'm not entirely sure. Meanwhile, richard's ex Irène, turns up to offer him the life that he could have had if if he'd stayed with her so i mean it's it's very very self-consciously you know knowing witty frivolous um you know occasionally entertaining sometimes a little exasperating and sometimes kind of irritating. It has got a very, very fine central performance uh, from Chiara Mastroianni, who, who I think just about manages to hold the whole meringue together. I didn't know when I when I saw the film, and I only read this afterwards, that the person who plays Richard is played by um, Benjamin Bioli, who was indeed married at one point to Chiara Mastroianni, which lends it a kind of meta air. I'm not sure that that makes much different the thing that i kept thinking was um we reviewed that film la belle époque uh, i think it was just either earlier this year or last year which uh, you know stars daniel Atoya and which i had really expected wouldn't be great and which i loved it was that was that kind of nostalgic thing about going back into the past to discover the the love that you think you've you know has has, has somehow eluded you and i loved that film it when when it on paper it just sounded excruciating and yet actually when i watched it i thought it was charming and funny and moving and touching and, and just really really lovely and i didn't find that with this i found that with uh, chambre 212 on a magical night all i kept doing was thinking about this other film that i liked a lot more and thinking I kind of wish I was watching that. I mean, there are, there are, there are fine things in it. As I said, you know, Chiara Mastroianu is, is, is very good in the lead and she, has a, she had to carry an awful lot of the weight of the movie. But it was, it was whimsical and frothy to the point of inconsequentiality. And that's fine under certain circumstances, but it did rather try my patience. Anyway, um, uh, sorry, it's, sorry, it's available sorry, can, now. Can I just take that back? Charles Aznavour is what? Well, I think he's, it's not, you know, it's this character who sort of looks like Charles Aznavour, and he's, I think he's meant to be the sort of spirit of her, you know, of her joie de vivre, of her lust for life. I think that's what he is. I'm not entirely sure. Right. And are you saying Aznavour? Well, how do you say it? Aznavois?
1: Charles Aznavour. yeah. I was just, just wanted I was just checking. No, the, I'm just I saying it
2: wrong. But I mean, my, my French accent is terrible. We were talking about the same person. She maybe the that's, I can't forget. Maybe That's exactly the right person. That's exactly. It was like he was in the room, wasn't it?
1: That, that just, sound, that on a magical night, I have to say, it sounds a little bit annoying.
2: Yes, and that's, that's exactly how I intended you to read that, because that is exactly how it felt. A little bit annoying.
1: Okay. Uh Amando, uh shortly while we're waiting for Amando to turn up, what else I'm not not implying that you're just filling a space mark between now and Amando time.
2: I know exactly what you're implying. Thank yes. you. Okay, so White Riot. I think you would love this, right? This is a documentary that um it won the uh, it won a documentary award at the London Film Festival last year, back in October. And in fact I first mentioned it back then. Um, so this is a documentary by big Shah about the birth of rock against racism in the 1970s. And it's about how rock against racism was formed and what it was trying to do. And it's kind of grassroots and it leads up to the, um, the big gig that uh, anti-Nazi carnival in Victoria park in 1978, which I, you would probably remember when there was, you know, the clash and Tom Robinson and, and think still pulse. And, and the documentary, it, if you if you were around and listening to music at that time, particularly if you were kind of living in London at that time, it really, really struck a chord because that event was such a big deal. Um, and one of the things the documentary does really well, it's got contemporary interviews and also a wealth of archive footage, is it takes you back to a time in the mid-70s when Eric Clapton got on stage in Birmingham and, you know, obviously not in his best health just went on this incredibly crazed rant this lunatic lunatic rant that was so outrageous and so so racist and so terrible that people started feeling, we have to do you know we have to form some kind of grassroots organization and at the same time the uh the far right were on the rise in the shape of the national front and everything was starting to look very very grim here is a clip extreme races have become
0: part of balance, an acceptable point of view within the spectrum of political opinions. Can you imagine the media displaying the rhetoric of, say, black revolutionaries? I hope to achieve, through the ballot box, by getting people elected, first of all, an immediate halt to coloured immigration, and thereafter, the phased repatriation of all coloured immigrants, their descendants and dependents, from Britain to their lands of ethnic origin. And if they don't go, they're going to go.
1: What would happen if they don't want to go back? And he said, don't you worry, they're going back. Then we're into cattle
2: trains and, you know, we know what that means. You know what I mean? So in response to all that, Rock Against Racism was this organisation that was formed to, you know, to to unite black and white youth uh, through music and through, you know, raising political awareness. And I mean, my memory of it was that it was a genuinely grassroots movement. The uh, documentary follows it from kind of, you know, fanzine beginnings to little local groups ending up in this, this great big uh, 1978 uh, Victoria park event. I thought the doc was really great. Uh, not least because it, it got to grips with, um, it got to grips with, with, with the, the organizational complexities of what they were doing. It doesn't shy away from, from suggesting that this wasn't an, an easy fight. I mean, there's a lot of interesting discussion, for example, You know, about Jimmy Percy's role and Jimmy Percy really being somebody who was trying to to talk to people who to some extent were kind of, you know, uh, with whom the National Front already had a foothold. And Jimmy Percy always having this kind of very brave thing about, you know, we need we need to win over the people that we've lost, not just kind of preach to the converted. Then, you know, you hear stuff about the organization that makes you think it's amazing that any of this stuff ever came together because it all seemed to be happening on a wing and a prayer. You look at the contemporary footage when it's, you know, it's about this hideous specter of racism being confronted in the 1970s. And you think we're this many years later, it's terrifying how much of this stuff still rings true. And of course, there are just, you know, there's great stuff about bands that I really, really liked. I have to say, since I watched this documentary, I've been listening on hard rotation to the to, to the two Tom Robinson albums, to um, Power in the Darkness and TRB Two, and I haven't listened to those records for a long time. And my word, they're they're energizing. They are just, I mean, you know, it the, the, that first Tom Robinson band album, it just comes straight out of the gate, all guns blazing, and it's just he's on the money. It's just it's terrific you remember rock against racism simon i mean you, you you were this was kind of this is your time
1: i was just i was a student at, uh, at warwick at the time the uk's leading uh, university but i remember yes there are all there they were geeks in the university there were posters yep. up i didn't go to any of the london demos but there were certainly lots of events at the you know
2: at the university and it was but do you have good memories of it because i mean i just watching this it was like it 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 really you know I was I I felt excited by it and energised by it, but also kind of exasperated by the fact that you know there it it seems terribly relevant today. In fact, I I interviewed the filmmakers and I was talking to them about the fact that it there is this this fact that the spectre of the far right, you know, are very very present in the current news cycle. Um, but there is just something brilliantly uplifting for me, anyway, about seeing this thing. About no, we're not going to take this. We're not going to put up with this. We're going to do whatever we can. We're going to get all these, you know, scrappy bands together, and we're going to form a movement that says no. And I, you know, it just appealed to, to the, it appealed to the old lefty in me. And I, I, I thought it was really moving. I thought it was terrific. So where can I see White Riot? Well, it, here's the weird thing, so basically it was going to play a number of festivals over the summer because the festivals aren't happening, so it's now playing a series of virtual festival screenings with Q A s and screenings of the, of the movie. The best thing to do is go to the Modern Films website and you can see a number of you can find a number of screenings throughout the summer. It's, it's really well worth checking out. I thought it was a really terrific, a really terrific piece of work, very energizing and, and you know with real raw power and conviction, and something to be excited about. Uh, next up, we're going to speak to uh, Amanda Iannucci, who joins us from
1: heaven
0: knows where. Hello, Armando. Hello. I'm not going to tell you where I am. Why not? I don't know. I just thought I would inject some kind of sense <laughs> of drama and uh, <laughs> suspense. Are you, now, you're probably too young. Mark's talking about this, uh,
1: this documentary, White Riot, about rock against racism. Do you remember that? Are you old enough to remember that?
0: Uh, yeah, I think so. How old am I? Fifty six, fifty seven. I'm that age where I have to think how old I am. I think I'm fifty six, yes. Well, it was it kind of it kicked <laughs> off in, mid, mid 1970s to you know 76,
2: 78. That was kind of the height of it. So it kind of yeah. tied in with, the, you know, with, with punk bands, you know, like like The Clash, yeah. and X-Ray Specs, Tom Robinson Band, Steel Pulse, um, you know, because that whole kind of punk reggae thing was really, you know, punk reggae funk all, all coming together in this kind of melting pot. It just it just felt like one of those great moments when when you felt we can
0: change the world. Yeah, I was into Schubert and Mahler at that age. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I was rocking my brain. <laughs> yes, fair it was, it,
1: was an, it was an unfair question, but you were just yeah. coming off the back of it, so I just thought, yeah. no, on I the off him. chance Dominic that you Ma- were, you, you know, yeah. that you jumped on the stage at a Clash gig, <laughs> at age
0: fifteen, and started yeah. spitting, it might be worth asking you. Okay, no, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I don't want to go as far as Dominic Rab in being completely out of it but uh I've i actually written
1: down Dominic Raab uh, on this piece of paper here and uh, it's only because obviously we're going to talk about David Copperfield but it just occurred to me when this week Dominic Raab said that he thought that taking the knee came from Game of Thrones yeah that it was exactly the kind of line that you would have put in (laughs) thick of it I mean it was but you know word for word the foreign secretary thinks that this thing comes from game of
0: thrones i mean you must have you must be thinking that like every day well not, not only that but you do remember that he was surprised about how much stuff came into the country via cali uh oh, that's... <laughs> when he was brexit he has this he was Brexit secretary then he has this uh, uncanny instinct for for being the most inappropriate person to have in the job that he currently holds <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, quite a feat, really. No, I think this is genius. I don't think any of us could have come up with any of this. I think, I think we would have dismissed it. You know, if somebody came up with any of this, we would have said, "No, that's just too stupid. That's too silly." Uh, uh, and I, I'm now reaching the state where I think I shouldn't reject any idea because actually, there's no way any idea that someone fictionalizes is going to be as crazy yeah. as what's actually happening. Have you, have um, you
1: found this, uh, this period of lockdown, Amanda, have you found it creative or have you found it like many people it's just like really difficult to focus and concentrate on anything?
0: It's very odd. I mean, we are, we're in the moment of writing, uh, the second season of Avenue five, which is the HBO show. Uh, and then, but it struck me that Avenue five is about six and a half thousand people stranded in space with no hope of rescue and a complete lack of leadership uh and in isolation and it, and it's sort of on the one level I empathize with that and the other on the other I really wish my work was completely different from real life at the moment um yes I think it's I I found the longer it's gone on actually the less funny I want to be and the more angry I want to be um but um that that will take this interview in a whole other direction yes with, yes, with yes <laughs> it,
1: it, exactly whereas actually what we're just underlining is the fact that the personal history of David Copperfield uh, is available uh, you can rent it you can buy it you can stream it uh, and and Mark and I, we we both said how much we love it, and uh, and and now Mark, in fact, is going to say how much he loves it. Well,
2: I mean, I just I, I I've told you this before, but I just thought it was a, such a joy of a film. I've seen it three times now, and every time I see it, I love it more. I love the casting, I love the fact that it it's got it plays up that kind of the modernity of the source. I love the fact that it's as funny as it is. Uh, but it also has, you know, depth and, and I, 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 I cannot find anything wrong with it. And believe me, Ooh. I've given up looking. I love <laughs> that film.
0: Oh, good. Oh, Well, thank you very much. I mean, that's, uh, that means uh, uh, an almighty lot. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, it was a labour of, I was going to say a labour of love, yes. But it was a labour of, you know, I wanted to put, I wanted to come up with something positive, really. I wanted to celebrate what I think Britain actually is, which is actually a generous and open and creative country rather than as some people would have us think a kind of inward looking and isolationist country um and i wanted to having done 10 years of you know veep and think of it i kind of wanted to do something that was positive and optimistic really rather than as you know i probably will be doing for some time looking at where things don't work and where things aggravate us so uh yes and and dev dev patel i mean he was just i didn't i could only think of him to play david because he's in practically every scene isn't he for like two hours and he has to do drama slapstick uh visual comedy romance vulnerability strength he has to do all these things i could only think of dev to play it really and i didn't really have a plan b if it's if he'd said no so it was very Uh, so what was it that you'd seen about dev patel that made you think he's the guy That well, you had you know, only we, one plan we kind of watched him grow up in skins and be very vulnerable and gawky and awkward and and all that. you know so he he's funny and he's warm he has that um he has that spirit you know he you want whatever character he's playing you want him to do well <laughs> you want him to come good and then when i saw him in lion be very strong and Focused and still, actually, I it was at that point I thought that's David. There's David Copperfield, because I knew we had to do this transition in across the film, see a life lived, see someone go through life's ups and downs, and be you know punched quite a lot metaphorically by circumstances, and somehow come shining through in a kind of very convincing and believable and enthusiastic way. And so I I could only think of. And it's interesting when we sat down and after he'd said yes and you know I went out to meet him much more kind of intensively to talk about the actual story, we kind of speculated on whether in Victorian England the whole anxiety anxiety about where you are in society is related to class and wealth and so on and if you were poor you were an outsider if you were you worked in a factory you were you were marginalized and whether the equivalent of that today may well be race and ethnicity or at least part of it in that we both could identify being born in the uk but coming from immigrant families how we grew up with that sense of do we fit in or do we not fit in what's our background and what's our place and so on um so maybe you know without it turning into a kind of manifesto about it i i did think that might be the kind of modern day equivalent of that status anxiety that people went through uh 150 years ago
1: i think so i think so many people came out of that i mean it it sounds on the one hand a trivial comment but it's such a colorful film it sounds like a really Naff and cheesy things to say, but it's it's absolutely vibrant all the way through, which kind of underlines everything that you've just been
0: saying. Oh well, thank you. And it, it's not just you know how we went about casting it, but we were blessed with um shooting it across one of the most glorious summers we've had in a long, long time. um uh, And also, I'd say to uh, Zach Nicholson, our, our DOP, and to the costume and makeup. I said I want it to be beautiful, I want it to feel fresh because, yes, it's set in 1840 and, yes, we went to a lot of trouble to get, you know, to identify the wallpaper that people had and the dresses and patterns and hairstyles that people had. But for the audience in the cinema, I, I want them to feel they could step up into it and, and it not feel alien, that, you know, for the people in the film, they're in their present day, you know, 1840 to them. Is the present day, and they've got their future ahead of them, and so London should feel like a vibrant, exciting city. City, yes, um, you know, dangerous if you go down the wrong place or um, fall in with the wrong people. But but also so much potential and hope there as well. And and I don't know why it is in costume dramas when people take a book off the library, off a shelf, it's covered in cobwebs because that book's new. <laughs> they've just bought it. You know why are they looking at it? Because they've bought it. You know. <laughs> I would be furious if uh, Amazon sent me a book covered in cobwebs. But you know,
2: but it, it it it's interesting because in in that thing you're talking about about making everything vibrant and contemporary. That's very much one of my favorite directors is Ken Russell. And Ken Russell said that when he made the de- when he made The Devils, he wanted Ludon to look like the city from Metropolis, because he wa- he said, because for them it was modern and fantastic and clean and glowing. It wasn't mossy and rocks. And I do think that you've got, there, there is a similar sensibility, which also leads me on to something, which is tell us something about the music for David Copperfield, because it, it's a film that doesn't just sound
0: great. You mentioned Ken Russell there, and I do remember, because Ken Russell made lots of biopics of classical composers, yeah. Yeah. Um and the, is it the music lovers? The One of tchaikovsky uh, Chichol- yeah. and I remember... Yeah, his use of the 1812 Overture, he did it with so much exciting visuals and energy and people running, you know, capturing that enthusiasm, sort of telling you that that music, you know, was yes, it was written 100 years ago, but people at the time were hearing it for the very first time. Imagine how exciting that must have sounded and trying to try to recreate that excitement on screen. For the music, uh, I worked with Christopher Willis, who did the music for The Death of Stalin. And Christopher is, I mean, he's amazing. He, he, he's based out in LA, but he's British. He's um, classically trained. And he, he uh, you know, we spoke about the kind of musical tradition I wanted to feel part of. I, I keep telling him, I don't want the, f- the music to sound like film music, as in the music is telling you everything that's happening on screen and everything is timed to practically every move that someone makes. I want it to feel like it's an additional voice an additional actor or on set as it were so it's telling you something in addition to what you're seeing and and christopher has a great way of absorbing himself in the composers that we felt might form a sort of template a kind of suggestion of so we looked at benjamin Britten and william walton and and you know lots of lesser known sort of british composers from the last 150 years and just tried to capture that sound that they come up with. But then he he writes something that is has one foot in that tradition, but also one foot in the present. And then he got an existing orchestra. He got the Aurora Orchestra to record it, because they all know each other, so they have that understanding of each other and how they play. And, and he comes up with this music that, um, as I say, has a kind of, it's another voice. It's almost like the narrator, in a way, um, if you needed one. Um, so that it supplies something in addition to the lighting and the costume and the and the performances and the dialogue yeah
2: I, lo- I love it i i i love everything about that film i i honestly can't find a single thing about it that i don't love so thank you
0: oh, well, <laughs> i shall retire now
2: <laughs>
0: just before
1: you go man just while we have you i just as a man who's been behind so much of the great comedy that we've seen in this country for a very very long time when Uh, you were reading and seeing on the news Mm. about the uh, BBC Netflix pulling Little Britain and then the Fawlty Towers episode Mm. being taken away and then being re-edited. And I'm not quite sure people were complaining about the right thing about that anyway. And then John Cleese talking to the BBC cowardly and gutless and saying, well, we laughed at Alf Garnett. And then Harry Enfield going on the radio and defending the use of blackface when he was playing Nelson Mandela. As someone who has just been a part of our comedy lives for a long, long time... What have you made of uh, of that conversation?
0: Well, I mean, I was interested to see that some of the people behind Black Lives Matter in, in the UK were saying actually that this was in danger of being a distraction. My feeling about it always is you've got to keep moving. You've got to keep moving forward. And the important thing is actually not so much, you know, what's up online, what's available, uh, what's in it, what isn't, but what are we doing now? You know, how are we not just... Not what stories are we are we telling, but but how are we casting? You know, what's our what our crew, What's our crewing like? You know, where this industry gets back up and moving again, and I think that's much more important. And and especially, I mean, we talked a bit about it in David Copperfield, but you know, if if it prompts casting directors and directors and producers to start thinking, we have to cast, we can cast a different way. We don't, you know, we have to cast from a hundred percent of the amazing acting talent available to us you know, why should we restrict the percentage of people we cast from? Then hopefully they've taken something from the film. So I'm always thinking, I mean, what I do with, say something like Avenue 5, you know, when I'm looking for new writers, I ask the writing agents to send their kind of new writing talent, but to remove all the names. So I have no idea as I'm reading, you know, background, name, gender, ethnicity, education, nothing. I just want to know if it's funny. I don't, I don't care if, if this script is funny. I don't care if it's a 65-year-old or a five-year-old, really, who's written it. I mean, it'd be amazing if it was a five-year-old. But um, <laughs> And I just think, you know, if we keep kind of thinking forward, uh, hopefully, it's not going to happen overnight, but hopefully we'll end up, you know, making television comedy and film comedy that is much more representative of the, of the country we are growing up in. Can I ask you one thing very quickly, which is Mm. if you were
2: writing a political comedy now and you wrote into it a character who decided to test their eyes by putting their family into a car and driving to a (laughs) castle, wouldn't you take that out on the grounds that nobody would buy it?
0: Well, I don't know. You see, that I think is one of those – I mean, it's it's so abstract. It's so – I don't know. I don't know how any writer could have come up with it. You know, it's not an (laughs) obvious – it's not an obvious one. You know, it's not the foreign secretary doesn't know where France is. It's <laughs> uh, the, the prime minister's special adviser, who advised specifically <laughs> on the lockdown has decided to front out the lockdown <laughs> by taking his family on a road trip around the UK's travel beauty spots. I, you know, it's it's sort of, I think he is a genius. People say he, he's a genius. I think he is a genius, but it's a sort of, it's a sort of comic situationist genius that was displayed. There. <laughs> because I cannot get a handle on it. I, you know, I, I don't, I cannot decipher what the thought process was that went into making that decision, if that was the decision he made, you know, <laughs> if if his claim is true. Um, so I think we I think we scientists as well as um, philosophers will be analysing this for decades to come, I think. Amanda, it's always
1: a pleasure. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. The Personal History of David Copperfield available to stream now. Amanda, thanks very much. Wish you all the best, sir. Thank you. Thank you. It's always good having uh, Amanda on the programme. I have to say that I understand why he did that was a very diplomatic answer that he gave at the end yes. when I was talking about comedy and he said, well, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the future. the future. But you know, he has a very, very good point that all that stuff is a distraction to all the other issues that he was talking about as represented amazingly in David Copperfield, which uh, I'm going to watch again this weekend. I think
2: it's, it's so um, great, isn't it? It's it just is. so great. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love so
1: love still it. to come, we will be finishing of course, with our Hanks for listening section. We'll have the TV movies of the week, uh, but as uh, some other new stuff that uh, that can be streamed, what have you got?
2: We've got 7500, which is a thriller, which is on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, it stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He is an American uh, co-pilot flying a commercial airliner from Berlin to Paris. On board the plane, along with the passengers, are, is a flight attendant with him. He has a young child. And it turns out a group of hijackers who stormed the cockpit shortly after takeoff. And the rest of the film then plays out almost entirely within the confines of, of of the cockpit itself. So the film is directed by uh, Patrick Vollratt, right? a German director who got an Oscar nomination for his short film, Everything Will Be OK. And, you know, we were talking before, we mentioned 127 Hours. Um, I said there's not much hiking in it because he's stuck in one place. This is a film that has some of the kind of claustrophobia of a film like, you know, Buried or, or Lock or even 127 Hours in which there is a whole central section in which the character is stuck in one central location. And uh, they make the most of that location. It's a handheld camera sort of moving very dexterously around the cockpit and, you know, sinewy widescreen sensibility, but also that kind of sense of confinement, not a big music score or anything. It's just to do with the ambient sound of the airplane. And the film plays out in something approaching real time. It's not quite real time, but it has kind of sense that it is. I mean, it's an odd film. It's sort of balanced somewhere between the melodrama of those 70s airport movie airport and its sequels and obviously the kind of post 9/11 sensibility of Paul Greengrass's United 93 and it's sometimes that that is a kind of un, it's an awkward uh, marriage in the second half of the film it does try to do the thing about bringing one of the hijackers and the and uh, the central character device together they're both then shot in the cockpit and it becomes a kind of psychological drama to be honest with you that's the bit that works released well, but as a, as a sort of technical exercise in how much tension can we get out of a single locked down environment in a sort of, you know, confined running time. Actually, I thought it worked very well. It is, it is quite gruelling. It is quite nail biting. Um, there is some stuff in it is really nasty. Some stuff in it is unexpected. It moves into the realm of cliche more in the second half. But I thought it was, it, it, it was pretty well done. And it wouldn't just surprise me at all if the director Patrick Moura actually ends up getting off the back of this commissions to, to helm some pretty big movies because what it, it's like a calling card film it's a kind of like look what i can do with fairly limited resources so i i thought it was pretty decent it's on amazon prime now okay and what's it called again it's called seven five zero zero which is the the the, the 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 squawk box code for a hijacking it's not seven thousand five hundred that some people have referred to it it's not it's not a height thing it's seven five zero zero
1: uh, okay, let's do, before we, uh, we're we done, because we're almost at the end of the program, TV Movies of the Week. Uh, so we post all these on, uh, on our socials, and these are all subscription-free, okay? A lot of stuff you have to pay for. This stuff you don't. This week's offerings include Time Bandits, Sing, His Girl Friday, Ve- Velvet Goldmine, and Sing Street. Jay Holland says the correct answer is Time Bandits, Pure uh-huh. Gilliam, and the best incarnation of Robin Hood ever. Jolly good, in fact. Josie Colgan, my favourite would be His Girl Friday, but my two-year-olds would definitely be Sing, or as he calls it, Piggy Power.
0: So if any (laughs) parents are
1: looking for a few hours' peace this Saturday afternoon, I'd recommend that one. Catherine Lunny watched His Girl Friday in Lockdown slash Virtual Film Club, and we are avid West Wing Wing fans, but my God, they speak so fast in His Girl Friday, we felt swept up in the film (laughs) and loved the powerful female protagonist in the bottle episode setting of the press room at the, uh, the west wing references because they all walk and talk so fast what with it being aaron sorkin yeah. uh, for an awful lot of the time anyway charlotte Gita velvet Goldmine, please gorgeous mythic queer take on glam rock which features christian bale putting in an incredible performance as the same character in two different time periods and its story of art and politics gone sour seems very eerie 20 years on and lisa mm. newman sing street Sing Street, Sing Street, always Sing Street, even if it is on at Stupid O'Clock. Definitely needs to be seen by more people. A perfect film for the lifting
2: of the spirits. What are our TV movies of the week? Well, definitely Sing Street, which I love. It's uh, 20 to midnight on Monday on Film 4. Definitely His Girl Friday, which is uh, 5 to 1 in the morning on Wednesday on Talking Pictures TV. Definitely Velvet Goldmine. All of these I've flown the flag for before. 25 to 2 in the morning on Wednesday on Film 4. Wow, these these Um, are all incredible.
1: Really weird times for us.
2: I know, I know. But, you know, brilliantly, you can watch things at any time now due to the genius of being able to record stuff. Uh, Time Bandits, of course. Yeah, exactly. Time Bandits with that fantastic uh, Robin Hood section. uh, 11 in the morning on Saturday on Film 4. Also like to add, neither of these have been suggested, The Magnificent 7 is 2 in the afternoon on Sunday on BBC 2. And Glastonbury, um, uh, Julian Temple's film, is at 10 at night on Thursday on BBC 4. Those are my choices.
1: TV movies of the week so bad they're bad. The four dirty worst grandpa. movies.
2: On there's just there's just no point in saying anything else. Dirty grandpa's on this. Go ahead, dirty grandpa.
1: Anyway, Win T says I didn't think the remake of The Grudge was too bad. It's there were certainly a few moments where I screamed like a child. I think it's harder to produce a horror film with known actors. Something your subconscious tells you, oh, it's an actor. Monkey Overlord says the other three films do not deserve to be on this list due to the inclusion of the hateful and groan-inducing Dirty Grandpa. Yep. Even glossing over the fact that Nero somehow got roped into it, it's a shameful film with no redeeming qualities. Joe Phelan, well, Dirty Grandpa. To pick out a yep. solitary flaw would imply that some of the movie's elements are anything other than tripe, and that not being the case, I will refrain from highlighting any particulars, an abysmal wasteland of a film, which he puts in commas. Quinny says, Dirty Grandpa, without a doubt, it debases itself, De Niro, and cinema as an art form. It should sit outside and have a long, hard think about what it's done. (laughs) Uh, Finally, Emma JK, Dirty Grandpa, against better advice, I gave it a chance and I was wrong to do so. Truly, shockingly misfired. It only goes to show that people think that they can give comedy a try, like somehow that's a step down. Every gag was an utter fail. As an audience, yeah. I've never felt so disrespected.
2: So it's yeah. Dirty Grandpa then, is it? It's hideous. It is absolutely horrible. Can I get in one uh, more film review before the end of the show?
1: Hang on a second. What? no. Before, yes. I mean, yes, you can. But okay. most importantly, when can I avoid Dirty
2: Grandpa? Oh, I didn't even write down when it was. I just couldn't be bothered. It's on the, It's just at any time, at any time that it's on. I literally just looked at the title and stopped reading the list. I just went, well, that's it.
1: Okay, our top production team will will be telling us before we finish the program what time Dirty Grandpa is
2: on and when we can uh, uh, avoid it. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, what else you want to do? Okay. So, resistance. So, when Jesse Eisenberg came on the show um, to talk about Vivarium, he talked about the fact that he'd made this film in which he played Marcel Mosso in uh, during World War Two. So, this is a film drama based on a true story about Marcel Mosso's role. Um, uh, uh, sheltering uh, Jewish orphans during World War Two, and um, and his 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 role in this, his heroic role in this, that is not something that is widely known. Certainly not something that I knew uh, anything about before seeing the film. Um, here's a quick clip.
0: Why are we here?
1: Fighting a war we can't win, when we could be taking orphan children to another country before the Nazis get to them. I can't leave now.
0: Uh, what, what can we truly accomplish?
1: We can fight back. We found homes for the children, safe places.
2: No place is safe for them as long as they're in a country that's occupied by Nazis. And the, the little fighting that we can do. We
1: can slow them down and we can make it impossible for them in France.
2: There's no way he's French, Mark. There's no way that's French. No, I know. But OK, If so here's the thing. Um, what then happens is he, have, he he makes a connection with the children because of the fact that he has these miming and clowning skills. So there's a kind of an echo of Life is Beautiful and Better, Bernini film. And then it leads up to this journey in which he takes a group of children. Um, you know, en route to Switzerland, being pursued by by Klaus Barbie. So the film is written and directed by John Jakubowitz, um, who made *Castero Express* and, and *Hands of Stone*. And it is based on fact. I mean, the, the stuff. This this role is actually it's true. It's a true story. However, when you're watching the film, the film plays as if it's it's using a great degree of dramatic license certainly in its dramatic construction it's constructed very much like you know theatrical with you know romance and tension and it's put together very much like something that feels like it's based on a true story but it's taking liberties with that truth For me, the thing I was least convinced by was the use of mime, the use of clowning, which they clearly want to be a kind of centrally redemptive feature of the story. And partly it's because it's very, very hard for anybody to do Marcel Marceau anyway. And secondly, because I wasn't wasn't entirely sure that the film managed that as elegantly as it should have done. That said, this is not a story that I knew about beforehand. And despite the fact that there is, you know, that the the film itself is dramatic and theatrical, there is an argument that, well, you know, Marcel Marceau's chosen medium was theatre. The film begins with this thing in which um, Ed Harris's general Patton basically stands before his troops and starts to tell the story, which is kind of theatrical framing device. So it's almost as if, the film is making reference to the fact of uh, Mossot's theatricality. I, I I thought as a, as a film it wasn't brilliant, but it was re- it was still gripping and had many set pieces in it that worked very well. And it's and I, having gone in knowing nothing about this story, I came out wanting to know more. So it's it's flawed. It's not perfect. I um, it is flawed, but it is a really fascinating and uplifting story. And there are individual elements of it that work really strongly, even though the film itself it does have a very theatrical air. And I think perhaps I wanted something different than that. But it's, you know, it's it's definitely compulsive viewing.
1: Uh, OK, uh, so I can see that where remind me
2: uh, that is available on all streaming services EVS, okay. um, you know, everywhere.
1: Nine at night on Saturday on film four. If you want to avoid Dirty Grandpa, uh, that's yeah, easy so, so that you can just so you can steer clear. So, uh, we're almost done. Uh, still, Mark is going to pick his movie of the week. But before we finish, we have our Hanks for Listening feature. Because what with one thing and another, we're all finishing uh, with our leader, who is Tom Hanks. Here it is Tom in 1994's Forrest Gump. In this scene, Forrest's at the graveside of his beloved Jenny. Jenny, hate you. I don't know if Mama was right, or if, it, if it's Lieutenant Dan. I don't know if we each have a destiny, or if we're all just floating around accidental like on a breeze. But I, I think maybe it's both. Maybe both is happening at the same time. I miss you, Jimmy. If there's anything you need, I won't be far away. Now, the trouble with that is that we, we try and finish with an uplifting bit of Tom Hanks, and now everyone, we're leaving people feeling worse than when they started. But it's a great piece.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I just remember when. When Forrest Gump came out and a bunch of, I mean, I know it, was, you know it was a mainstream hit and everything, a bunch of critics were very arch and hated it. And in fact, one of the things in that Showgirls documentary is it says, you know, Showgirls is the, the anti-Forrest Gump because Forrest, Showgirls is a film that when it came out, everyone thought it was terrible and now they realise it's interesting. Whereas Forrest Gump was one of those films that the farther away from you get from it you get, the more terrible you realise it is. And I just think, no, it's not. I love Forrest Gump. Yeah, and I remember Danny Boyle loving Forrest Gump. And I don't care what anyone else thinks. There you go. That, that, that's enough. Thank you
1: very much. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Mark, what is your film of the
2: week? Well, it's not strictly of the week because, as I said, it's got a kind of very staggered release pattern. But I'm going to go for White Riot. I'm going to say film of the moment is White Riot. Find it where you can. Okay, the podcast with all sorts of groovy extras will be available. In
1: fact, it's available now. Uh, back next week with Simon Pegg. Thank you very much indeed for listening. This is 5 Live. Well, that's, the, are we recording Josh? Are we, are we recording? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all I can say, Mark is yet again, you know, resetting the standards. Um, astonishing people will take one lesson of the material that we've just been using for the last hour and a half and think, well, that's certainly. What was that all out. about? Yeah, what earth? Such rubbish.
2: It couldn't have been anybody else but you, you have done it again.
1: <laughs> yes. That's a, it's the kind of praise that um, Mozart, as Tom Hulse uh, gives yes. to Salieri, F. Murray Abrams. It was, with every note, it said Salieri. Hey, Salieri. And Salieri knows exactly <laughs> what Mozart said, which makes it a perfectly crafted <laughs> insult. So with, with every second of this show, it's clearly <laughs> been Mayo and Kermit slash Kermit and Mayo. <laughs> I seem to have fallen down oh, the pecking order somewhat. <laughs> anyway, but you were terrific. And um the, there's a new feature uh, on the show as from this week where we talk okay. about what it's where we talk about what's in the news. Okay, great. And Brilliant. Uh, uh, this has been officially sanctioned. Unless I get a message on our little um chat page uh, in I'll front of us, which says you better stop. Uh okay. oh there it is. Uh, don't don't do it but apparently we are allowed to discuss things that are in the news what do you think what do you make of this development that we are allowed to talk about the news
2: i think it's great because i mean i i think that that finally the shackles are off finally the, you know we, we we are able to say all the stuff that people could only only hear before with the bird song so I, I think it's great do you want to start or shall i start
1: Apparently we've just run out of tape. It's just at the end of the tape, so we're going to have to keep that for another. Oh, show, okay. okay, which is sorry. sort of uh, a disappointment. There's so
2: much to talk
1: about. Yeah, but anyway, so we'll do that in another. Uh, and another feature which is going to be introduced next week is where we get to product placement uh, for all our um, achievements that there are
2: available to sell. I, I think that we should we should put up um, there should be a website linked to the program that you can buy us stuff through. Very good.
1: Okay, so there are two features to look out for on next week's program. In the meantime, we have to make time this our old stuff, feature.
2: And here's what we think of the politics. That's right.
1: And uh, all the details will be filled out in next week's exciting <laughs> episode, which will be presented by uh, whoever's at Dave Morrissey. And, Dave Morrissey as well. And anyone else probably... who we, we can book. Uh, meantime, here's the feature that survived despite everything it's our DVDs of the week. And,
2: hey hey mark yes simon
1: no 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 okay we're gonna to have to try this. Out. Sorry. hey mark
2: okay hey simon okay because
1: even with a satellite delay that was that, that delay said i've had enough of this rubbish um so hey mark <laughs> hey simon right spoiler alert spoilers ahead okay here be spoilers when's the cutoff for spoilers would you say
2: Uh, Well, we've we've discussed this many times. Is 1815
1: early enough? Okay. Okay, well, I think it is. Emma, full stop, is out on DVD on (laughs) Mondays. Spoiler alert, everyone gets married. Sense and Sensibility (laughs) was written in 1811. Shall I go ahead and spoil that one? Yes, everyone gets married. married. Pride and Prejudice was written in 1813. (laughs) Guess what? Everyone gets married in that one too. So if you like large sideburns, and who doesn't, Poor rich people and absolutely no children in sight. Then Emma full stop is the one for you and probably Mark. <laughs> let's see what the audience would pick as a keeper. Okay. However, Leslie G. That was that was good. That was sort of like a wry aside, rather than here's a setup for a joke, here's a punchline. Mark doesn't laugh anyway. Leslie G. Emma, great <laughs> adaptation, beautifully filmed, wonderful costumes and a great soundtrack. Charlotte Lawrence has to be Emma. A really fun and colourful adaptation which I enjoyed a lot. Sarah Miles says, Got to be Emma, as a as fun and colourful adaptation of Austin may not bring anything too radical or new to the table, but is anything but badly done. Oh, okay. uh, Martin Comin. Martain. Martin. Martin Comin. Surely we'll have was, to be Emma. It, sorry,
2: what was that? What was that? What well, was that? It's, the name what was
1: is Mart, M-A-R-T, and then A-I, and then two Ns. So that's Martain, probably, Comin. Yeah. Martin okay. Komen, Fine. surely it will have to be Emma, a visually beautiful, funny, charming adaptation that is inherently rewatchable. Andrew Rose says, I love this movie. I've never been a massive Austin fan, but this brilliant version made me laugh and smile throughout. It was really touching at the end too. I found myself both infuriated with Emma and rooting for her to find happiness. Plus, it's visually stunning and, as we said, everyone gets married. So what is our dvd of the week
2: well i um, in the absence of the arrival of the uh of the version of uh, emma that's got uh, mike myers in it which as you know is jane austen powers i am going to go for emma full stop was that a joke you just did it was and 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 exactly see the same thing i do the joke laughter comes oh. then none
1: Right, so DVDs is
2: is, is Emma full stop. very good. <laughs> it's like we've lost the will to live. So, like, can't even be bothered anymore. I was thank reading. You, sorry, I was Watson. reading this thing. I just want I want the listener to know that the reason I was distracted was because our hilariously amusing production team are writing messages to each other in the message window because we're all in separate places. And it says chat window. Yeah. Ah, oh, yes, I agree with you about getting rid of them. Just recording now. Final straw stuff. Who can we get Oh sorry wrong chat window
1: <laughs> that, I mean that's just that's <laughs> comedy just, that's that's just, Armando levels just, of genius is
2: on the nose That's just that's just great that's terrific
1: Tell anyway. me a
2: joke to tell me a joke that will make me laugh I need I need insufficient I need laughs I need to laugh Tell me something that's actually really funny Uh oh, uh 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 can we talk about the news instead? <laughs> it's tragedy and comedy combined. What's brown and sticky? A stick. Uh, uh, okay. What's
1: brown and comes out of cows backwards? <laughs> the um, Isle of White Ferry. The Isle of White Ferry. <laughs> So, okay it worked there you go I thought I haven't got anything then I remembered that from the school that'll do that's it more okay, filth that's all right, next I'm... week
2: <laughs> that set me up for the weekend thank you that I haven't heard that before that's terrific I can't believe I've lived my life not knowing that joke
1: <laughs> what an uplifting contribution I've played in this uh, top podcast thanks for downloading okay. it download don't download anything else or we'll feel betrayed and undermined <laughs>
0: <laughs> BBC Sounds, music, radio, podcasts.
2: They say all people are six social connections away from each other. Oh, here he goes again. Do you think
1: we could try this to bag
2: ourselves a celeb for our podcast?
1: Let's give it a go. I'm Jamie Lang. And I'm Spencer Matthews. Join us on a mission to reach a celebrity using the six degrees of separation. With absolutely no prep, no celeb bookers, calling friends of friends and their friends. Will our powers of
2: persuasion work? I genuinely give it 50-50.
1: And is our contacts book more Z-list than A-list? You don't know a single A-lister. Six Degrees from Jamie and Spencer. Available to hear only on the BBC Sounds app.